Police say seven people are dead after a shooting inside a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia. Investigators say the gunman is among those killed. It's Wednesday, November 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, the shooting in Virginia is the second U.S. mass shooting in just four days. Also this hour, doctors in Massachusetts fear the worst is yet to come when it comes to kids and the respiratory illness RSV. If I had an infant, I would not bring them out of the house. For Thanksgiving or Christmas, I would not leave the house. Plus, the man tasked with handling the bankruptcy of cryptocurrency exchange FTX. He's viewed as something of a turnaround artist. He has been involved in several situations in which he's been quite dogged in recovering assets for creditors. And how the nation of Georgia is dealing with an influx of Russian men trying to avoid fighting the war in Ukraine. It's 7.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Authorities in Virginia are investigating a deadly shooting at a Walmart store in Chesapeake. City officials say six people were killed. NPR's Giles Snyder reports authorities say the suspected gunman is also dead. Chesapeake Police Spokesman Leo Kaczynski briefed reporters after midnight while first responders were still clearing the Walmart store looking for survivors. He said all hands are on deck. Many of our investigators here and we just, you know, piece by piece, you know, we just just take a little bit of time. You know, we have we have plenty of time right now. You know, we're the store's closed, so we're just we're going to you know investigate until we get everything complete. Kaczynski says police believe the shooting had stopped when police arrived just after 10 p.m. Eastern. Chesapeake is in the Hampton Roads region of Virginia, about seven miles south of Norfolk. Giles Snyder, NPR News. The suspect in the deadly shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs grew up for much of his life in San Antonio under a different name. Texas Public Radio's Josh Peck reports he dropped out of school the year before he changed his name. Anderson Lee Aldrich's legal name was Nicholas Franklin Brink before he changed it when he was 16. His grandparents, his legal guardians, granted him permission. Aldrich, now 22, is a suspect in a shooting that left five dead and nearly two dozen injured in a Colorado gay bar. The shooting comes as Republican politicians around the country have wielded rhetoric and legislation against LGBTQ plus people generally and transgender people specifically. Some conservative state legislatures and school districts have pulled books off of school shelves that include LGBTQ plus characters and themes. Aldrich was enrolled in a San Antonio area school district until withdrawing in October 2015 in his freshman year, the year before he changed his name. For NPR News, I'm Josh Peck in San Antonio. Violent protests have broken out at a factory in central China that manufactures Apple iPhones. NPR's Emily Fang reports videos posted on social media show at least hundreds of factory workers clashing with security guards over lack of pay and what workers say are unfair coronavirus policies. The Foxconn factory has been under lockdown for weeks over a surge in COVID cases. Workers who remain there have been housed in quarantine conditions, but say there haven't been proper health measures to stop more COVID infections. China is experiencing a nationwide surge in cases that has prompted more mass testing and lockdowns. That's NPR's Emily Fang reporting from Beijing. Britain's Supreme Court has ruled that the Scottish government cannot hold a second referendum on independence next year without approval from the British Parliament. The decision is a blow to the Scottish National Party, which backs independence. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading higher at this hour. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The Thanksgiving travel rush is getting off to a good start this morning. The website FlightAware reports just 10 delayed flights out of Logan Airport and no cancellations. Amtrak's not reporting any delays out of South Station and on the roads. The only delays are the normal morning rush hour slowdowns on 93. However, WBUR Simone Rios reports drivers could see some of the worst holiday traffic since before the pandemic. AAA predicts at the peak today there could be more than one and a half as many cars on I-93 south out of Boston compared to a typical day. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says traffic this weekend won't be much better. By far, Sunday afternoon is the is going to be the heaviest congestion of the week. Uh, everybody tends to come back at once. Saturday afternoons, you also see some some congestion. Uh, that that's also a day that we start to see a lot of people coming back. Gulliver says the lightest traffic of the holiday period will be tomorrow, Thanksgiving Day. Transportation officials say one way to avoid the hassles of driving altogether is to use public transportation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Massachusetts officials are opening a temporary emergency shelter to manage the strain on the system amid an influx of migrants. The center at the former Army base in Devons will open next month. It's set to accommodate up to 125 people and will be run by the Massachusetts Emergency, emergency Management Agency. Families there will get housing case management and help enrolling in state benefits. The shelter will be open for at least four months. State lawmakers are taking steps to protect the professional licenses of people who are struggling to pay their student debt. Massachusetts is one of 14 states where these licenses can be revoked for those who default on their loans. Jobs that require licenses include barbers, nurses, mechanics, teachers, and social workers. Backers of the bill say it'll ensure those people can keep their jobs so they can work toward paying off their debt. Claudia Martinez is the executive director of the student borrower advocacy organization Zero Debt Massachusetts. Passing this license protection bill will allow them not to have to fear to lose their licenses just because they have fallen behind on their student loan payments. The bill is now awaiting the governor's signature. FBI agents in Boston are working to return a stolen 16th century manuscript to Mexico. The document was signed by Spanish conquistador Hernando Cortez in the early 1500s. It was found when it showed up in a recent online auction in Massachusetts. The document was believed to be stolen from Mexico's National Archives nearly three decades ago. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. In sports, Bruins will go for their eighth straight win tonight as they visit the Florida Panthers. Celtics are at home tonight to take on the Dallas Mavericks. Forecast says mostly sunny today, highs in the upper 40s. Clear skies tonight, lows in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, more sunshine, cooler for the Thanksgiving Day holiday. Highs in the mid-40s. And Friday, mostly cloudy, rain this afternoon, highs in the low 50s. Right now, it is 38 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. 
ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Sammy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. There has been yet another mass shooting in the U.S., this time in the small coastal city of Chesapeake, Virginia. At least seven people were killed when someone opened fire last night at a local Walmart. The shooter is among the dead. NPR's Sarah McCammon joins us now from Norfolk with the latest. Sarah, it is still obviously very early in the investigation. Details are slow to come out, but just recap what we know at this point. Sure. So this happened late last night inside of a Walmart. Just after midnight this morning, the city of Chesapeake confirmed on Twitter that there had been an active shooter incident with multiple fatalities and that the shooter was dead. At that time, they were asking the public to stay away and give first responders time to do their jobs. Then early this morning, the city followed up to say there were seven deaths, including the shooter. We're still waiting for more information about possible injuries. The city also set up a family reunification site a few miles away for people searching for loved ones. And Rachel, just for context, Chesapeake is a city of about a quarter million people along the southern Virginia coast, kind of in the Norfolk area. Mm -hmm. The location of the shooting was a Walmart supercenter. That's the larger type of store, as I'm sure many people were shopping for the Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah. Do we know anything at this point about the shooter's motive? Nothing confirmed. You know, the city has said they're in the early hours of this investigation and don't have all the answers yet. All indications so far are that there was a single shooter and it's not clear how that person died. Local officials are planning to talk to the media in a little bit less than an hour here, so we may know more then. But again, this happened late last night. Details have been trickling in through the night. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin said in a tweet this morning that he's been in touch with law enforcement and is making uh, resources available to them as the investigation continues. So we have to say this is the second mass shooting in this country in just days. Over the weekend, there was the shooting in Colorado Springs. I mean, it's early there, but what kind of responses are you getting from officials or other folks in that community? You know, so far, Rachel, it's following the sadly the typical s- script that we see with so many of these. Chesapeake's mayor, Rick West, released a statement early this morning saying he was, quote, devastated by the senseless act of violence that took pla- place late last night in our city. He thanked first responders for their quick work. He described Chesapeake as a tight-knit community and asked for prayers and support from the public during this time. And as you mentioned, it comes just days after a mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs that killed five people and injured more than a dozen others. And this happens, you know, just two days before Thanksgiving. It's going to be a lot for this community to absorb. Um, State Senator Louisa Lucas, who represents the Chesapeake area in Virginia's legislature, tweeted, quote, I am absolutely heartbroken that America's latest mass shooting took place in a Walmart in my district in Chesapeake, Virginia tonight. I will not rest until we find the solutions to end this gun violence epidemic in our country that has taken so many lives, she said. So solutions. Uh, Sarah, you covered another mass shooting in your area just a few years ago down there. What, if anything, has changed since then? Yeah, in May of 2019, you may remember a gunman shot and killed 12 people in neighboring Virginia Beach right next to Chesapeake. This is also part of a cluster of cities down here along the Virginia coast known as Hampton Roads. There were efforts in response to that to find solutions. 
uh, about three years ago. Then, you know, then Governor Ralph Northam, who's a Democrat, pushed the Virginia legislature to take up a package of gun control reforms in the 2020 session in response to that shooting in Virginia Beach. That sparked a backlash and large protests from gun rights groups. But ultimately, the legislature did pass a series of gun control laws. Those took effect last year, including new rules for background checks and some limits on the number of firearms a person could buy in a short period of time. We really don't know anything, though, about how this shooter uh, got this firearm. NPR's Sarah McCammon reporting on the details just emerging about the shooting that took place at a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia, last night. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. A jury in Los Angeles has found that the NCAA is not responsible for the death of a college football player. The wife of a former USC linebacker, Matthew Gee, who died in 2018, filed a wrongful death lawsuit claiming that CTE contributed to her husband's early death. CTE is a form of traumatic brain injury. This is the first case of its kind to reach a verdict. Joining us now is Los Angeles Times sports editor, Steve Henson. Steve, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Rachel. This is a civil case, not a criminal case. What was the jury asked to decide specifically? Well, this was a landmark case and that it was the it was the first lawsuit against the NCAA in which a jury decided whether hits to the head in college football led to uh, CTE and death. There's been other cases that have, that have been settled before trial. And uh, according to experts, many more are being prepared by plaintiffs who believe the NCAA should be held accountable Hmm. uh, for the repetitive brain trauma they or family members suffered while playing college football. But the jury was asked uh, a a couple questions. Did the NCAA bear responsibility for Matt Gee's death? And did medical science link Matt Gee's death to his college football career? And the answers uh, to those it, questions? It, it, yeah, so it's a civil it's a civil case, so it, rather than criminal. So the, the standard was not beyond a reasonable doubt. It was mm. a preponderance of the evidence, meaning 51%. Still, the verdict was a resounding no. The, 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 the trial took a month with numerous expert witnesses testifying for both sides. It was a complex case, and the jury took all of one day to render a verdict. So... If, if this case is being looked at as, as perhaps a bellwether for whether or not the league should be responsible for these kinds of injuries, I mean, were the circumstances of this case such that it was it was a good model? You know, and it, it, it really wasn't. And in speaking to, to, to experts in the CTE world, uh, th- they kind of saw problems with this case from the outset. It was it was it was a bit muddied. And, and the problem was that Matt Gee had many health issues besides CTE that the NCAA expert witnesses could say caused or contributed to his death, which was ruled by the coroner to be caused by cardiac arrest and that acute alcohol and cocaine toxicity were contributing factors. So testimony established that he had untreated hypertension, coronary artery disease, um, uh, his heart was enlarged. He had advanced liver disease, untreated sleep apnea. He was obese. So there was all these other factors that could have contributed to his death that I think made it difficult for the jury to just hone in on, on the CTE. So, you know, many of the higher profile conversations about head trauma and sports focus on football. This is about basketball. How important are these discussions about head injuries for the next generation of college and university players? 
Well, yeah, you know, um, the the NCAA as a, is the governing body of college athletics, and so uh, uh, a lot of their experts during the, during uh, the the trial sort of passed the buck to the member schools, saying that the the schools are responsible for player safety, not the governing body. That that the schools are where team doctors and athletic trainers and day to day contact with athletes takes place. And that that is 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 where the responsibility should be. I'm not sure. I, I the, a lot of the folks that uh, that were involved with the trial wouldn't speak until it was over. And I'll do some reporting, but I, I'm interested to to know why the the member schools aren't being sued, and it's it's uh, it's the governing body that's that seems to be the target of most of these lawsuits. Has there been any response from the NCAA itself to the verdict? Well, they said it was it was the right the right verdict. Yeah, their their legal counsel came out with a statement and said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the right the right call was made. What about the family? Um, but uh, well, yeah, Alana Gee, um, Matt Gee's um, widow, uh, who who was the plaintiff in this case, was teary eyed. She had nothing to say um, right after the uh, the verdict and. Uh, and then they have three children as well. They're uh, adult children at this point, and um, not, no one, no one, no one commented yet. But some experts believe this case established a, a foundation for negligence in future cases because a lot of the same expert witnesses yeah. um, will. Uh, would would be testifying in another case as well. Yeah. It's a small pool of it's a it's a finite group of of witnesses. We'll have to leave it there. LA Times sports editor Steve Hansen, thanks. Thank you. About a million of us here in the U.S. will spend some time in an airport during this upcoming Thanksgiving. If all goes according to plan, you get to the airport, glide right through security check, and take off on time. Or maybe you get the flip side. Weather delays an overbooked flight, and to top it all off, they lost your luggage. We've all been there. Which is why Wall Street Journal columnist Don Gilbertson has a ranking of the best and worst airports in the U.S. We look at 19 criteria uh, from on-time arrivals to Uber costs to even the price of a bottle of water. And we broadly put them in three categories, reliability, convenience, and value. So who was the best? Well, number one among the big airports might surprise some people. It's uh, San Francisco International Airport. Um, What vaulted San Francisco to the top is their on-time performance. I mean, it's north of 80%. SFO, first in class, despite all that fog. For best mid-size airport, you don't have to travel far. It's California for the win again. Sacramento Airport, uh, you know, which is not all that far from uh, SFO. You know, it's a delightful little airport. I, I spoke with the airport director and she was telling me that, you know, even the landscapers there help direct passengers. Okay, we all know there's some crowded, hard-to-navigate airports. You may be headed to one right now, but which one is considered the worst of the worst? This probably will not surprise anybody who's ever traveled through the Northeast, but uh, Newark takes the crown yet again. It's just really congested there. Poor Newark. But what about the best airport for, say, a good snack while you wait? And you come to Phoenix and you can get, you know, the you know world-famous uh, guacamole from Barrio Cafe in Terminal 4. Terminal 4, Phoenix. Guac for Thanksgiving it is. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, how the nation of Georgia is responding to the tens of thousands of Russian men who fled there to avoid being drafted to fight in the war in Ukraine. The time is 7.19. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. ALPrime.com. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. Join WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other, our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story live at the Omni Parker House in Boston. Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Details at wbur.org slash events. Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny skies today. Temperatures in the upper 40s. Right now, 37 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. In Europe, the government of Georgia says more than 100,000 Russians have settled there, many after fleeing conscription to fight in Ukraine. Like Ukraine, Georgia was invaded by Russia, and Russian forces occupy part of that country. So the recent arrival of tens of thousands of Russian exiles has alarmed a lot of Georgians. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from the capital, Tbilisi. In a park in central Tbilisi, not far from giant posters and banners in support of Ukraine, you'll find a popular bar called Tedena. The name means mother tongue in the Georgian language, but the most noticeable sign is in English, and it's a warning. World should stop Russian aggression. Russia is an occupier. Three exclamation points. Putin is evil. If you do not agree with these statements, please do not come in. Russians do not need a visa to enter Georgia, but Dedena manager Tato Lundaridze says they do need permission to enter this bar. We decided to filter people who is against war and who is not. 
if you are citizen of Russia, you have to feel your country is aggressor and making these terrible things. You have to be against this. That means filling out an online form acknowledging and opposing the Kremlin's war on Ukraine and the Russian occupation of Georgia. And only then do you get your bar visa, a stamp on the hand that reads... <laughs> I don't know how to translate bad word in English, but it's like Putin is... Bar patrons like software developer Anna Yashvili support this screening. She compares the recent influx of Russians to an invasion of another kind. For example, if I go out to the supermarket, I only hear Russian-speaking people. I feel like Russia just entered into Georgia and we're being occupied without a war. Yeah. You're getting emotional about it. It really bothers you. It's noticeable that nation changed. Anti-Russian graffiti is all over Tbilisi. Georgians have even demanded that their government close the border to Russians. But Russian dissidents have been settling in Georgia for years. Igor Kuruptev left Russia a decade ago after the Kremlin banned the TV channel he ran. He and other Russian dissidents in Georgia regularly hold anti-war protests here. Kuruptev says the Kremlin's forced conscription of men to fight in Ukraine has brought more Russians to Georgia than he's ever seen. Georgia became the number one country in terms of Russian dissidents or political exiles, but the major group are people who don't really care about any politics, but they don't want to go and die. He says that because of the Kremlin's propaganda, many don't even know that thousands of Russian troops have occupied two regions of Georgia, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, since 2008. So he set up a special hotline to fill them in. For me, it was important to provide them at least some information about the war, about the occupation of the country, about how to act in the country when you just arrive. Most Georgians feel some sympathy for Russian exiles who oppose Putin, but they are also deeply troubled by the Kremlin's attack on Ukraine and their own bad experiences with Russian imperialism. Hatya Dekanoitse, an opposition member of parliament, says she's concerned there are Putin sympathizers or even spies among the most recent arrivals from Russia. I consider them as a threat of the national security. For me, there is only one Russia, and it is Putin's Russia. So if anybody wants to oppose Putin, I mean, they have to stay in their country and oppose the government. Georgia allows Russians to live here without a visa for up to a year. The Interior Ministry says its records show that of the Russians who arrived this year, fewer than 120,000 have stayed. But Tbilisi State University professor Yago Kashkashishvili says the real number is probably much higher and is driving up the cost of living. The percentage of Russians now in Georgia is almost 10%. So the life, everyday life of Georgians became harder, of course. Prices went up. Accommodation, for example. Prices became twice, three times more than it used to be. That has put pressure on the ruling party, Georgian Dream. It's run by a billionaire who made his fortune in Russia and whose family was recently sanctioned by Ukraine. The Georgian government is afraid to take any step that would make Putin unhappy. That's Gia Nodia, a political analyst and former education minister. He says the government criticizes its opponents for being too critical of the Kremlin. And uh, that may invite Russian aggression, if you wish, that we are vulnerable. So Georgian government presents itself as the force that prevents Georgia from entering the war. 
and it has created this conspiracy theory that there is collusion between United States government, European Union, and Georgian opposition aimed at dragging Georgia into the war. But Georgi Halashvili, a Georgian dream lawmaker and former diplomat, strongly denies that his party's policies help the Kremlin. The worst insult in Georgia is to call someone pro-Russian or pro-Kremlin. For us, the major challenge is how to keep Georgia secure and independent from Russia so that we don't fall in the sphere of influence of Russia. And for that, we have done everything that a country's government can do in our position. Georgians like Medico Kubelitsa aren't satisfied with these assurances. This war that's going on in Ukraine now is very personal for us. We kind of identify ourselves with Ukrainians and uh, it kind of woke this sorrow in, in us, in Georgians. Gubelitsa is the chef and owner of a restaurant called Shavi Lomi, which means black lion in Georgian. Like many establishments around the capital, the restaurant is filled with stickers supporting Ukraine and slamming the Kremlin as imperialist occupiers. But unlike the bar we visited earlier, Kubelice and her staff do not check anyone's passports. This very young guy, I remember it, 20, 21 years old, who came in once and said in English that, hello, I'm Russian, can I eat here? And I felt so bad, you know, it's not easy to be Russian right now, so I feel for them. But we have to be very careful, of course. She says she let the young man in. He dined alone, next to a sign that read, Glory to Ukraine. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Tbilisi, Georgia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, what this month's midterm election results show for candidates who falsely deny the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org. And LabShares Newton, freeing up biotechs to focus on difficult diseases at state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities. LabShares.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Authorities in Virginia are investigating a deadly shooting at a Walmart store in Chesapeake. Six people were killed last night by a gunman in the store. Several others were wounded. NPR's Giles Snyder says the gunfire broke out after 10 o'clock local time. Chesapeake Police Spokesman Leo Kaczynski briefed reporters after midnight. He said police believe there was one shooter and that person is dead. It's unclear if the gunman took his own life, though Kaczynski says it doesn't appear officers fired any rounds after arriving at the store. At this point, you know, we have many of our investigators here and we just, you know, piece by piece. Chesapeake is about seven miles south of Norfolk in southeast Virginia. There's a court hearing today in Colorado for the person suspected of carrying out last weekend's deadly shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs. Dan Boyce with Colorado Public Radio says Anderson Lee Aldrich has been moved from a hospital to the El Paso County Jail. The 22-year-old Aldrich had been in the hospital after Club Q patrons injured him during the deadly shooting late Saturday night. The Colorado Springs Police Department tweeted they had turned Aldrich over to the El Paso County Sheriff's Office at the jail. 
Five people were killed and 19 injured in the attack. For NPR News, I'm Dan Boyce in Colorado Springs. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Massachusetts public health data show just 7% of college-aged residents of the state have received the bivalent COVID booster. That's compared to nearly half who got the first booster. WBUR's Vanessa Ochevillo explains a patchwork of university policies has largely left the choice up to students. Unlike with past vaccine rollouts, very few colleges and universities in the state require the latest shot, which experts say offers added protection against the widely circulating Omicron variants. Only two, Harvard and Tufts, require it. Others highly encourage it. Boston University recently hosted a day-long bivalent vaccine clinic that boosted over 600 people in its campus community. Among the takers was student Ksenia Sherstuk, who says she wants the added protection before visiting a friend's family for Thanksgiving. I also haven't gotten sick before, so I don't want to get sick now. A university spokesperson says it held the clinic to get more people boosted ahead of the holidays. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillio. An online database confirming which Massachusetts police officers are certified is set to go live as soon as next week. The Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission voted to make the list public. This comes after the latest round of recertifications. Most of the nearly 9,000 officers in that pool got recertified. 26 officers were denied because of pending disciplinary action. A plan to remake a key interchange on Sturrow Drive in Boston's in the works, but still years from becoming a reality. State transportation officials say there is money to replace the Boker Overpass, the bridge that carries drivers from Sturrow over the Mass Pike into Fenway. A second part of that project will rebuild Sturrow Drive in the area, but officials say it could be a decade before the work is completed. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Sports Celtics are back at the Garden tonight to play the Dallas Mavericks. Bruins are in South Florida to play the Panthers. Forecast says mostly sunny today, highs in the upper 40s. Clear skies tonight, lows down in the upper 20s. Right now it is 37 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. We learned a lot from the 2022 midterms. Abortion access matters to voters. Florida might not be a swing state anymore. And election denialism is not a winning strategy. NPR's Miles Parks covers voting, and he's been reporting on that last point a whole lot in the last two weeks since voting ended. Hi, Miles. Hey, Rachel. Good morning. Nice to see you in studio. So we know some pretty high-profile candidates who denied the 2020 election results. They actually lost their races this year. Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, Carrie Lake in Arizona. But you have a new analysis out that shows these kinds of candidates 
did especially bad in races to control elections, right? Right. So I've been really interested in monitoring secretary of state races all across the country because they're really the clearest question of how voters feel about election conspiracies. Do you want a person in charge of voting in your state who spews lies about the 2020 election, right? Mm -hmm. And voters overwhelmingly said no specifically to that question. Our analysis found that election deniers consistently underperformed other Republicans on the ballot in all of these races in in competitive states. Although these are down-ballot races, right? Isn't it normal for these candidates to get fewer votes? It is, right. But this is actually where it gets really interesting, because Republicans who did not deny the 2020 election results did not see the same drop off in support. So we looked at Mm. seven different swing states. In the five races where there was an election denier running as the nominee for one of these positions, they got on average about 93% of the votes of the top vote getter at the top of the ballot. But in the two states, Georgia and Colorado, where there wasn't an election denier running for secretary of state, those candidates ran neck and neck with the top vote getters. In Georgia, for instance, Brad Raffensperger, you know, of the 2020 fame, uh, won his reelection by about nine percentage points. And his opponent, B. Wynn, told NPR's Michelle Martin that he was really hard to beat specifically because he did not deny the election results. We also had a larger challenge in Georgia running against incumbents who were not seen as extremists to Georgia voters. And so going up against that is obviously an uphill battle. We also saw Democrats pour money into helping election deniers win primaries in some places earlier this year because it's clear that they felt like these candidates were beatable and they turned out they were right. Right. Very controversial at the time and turned out to have been a winning strategy for Democrats, at least. So has this proven to the GOP that supporting candidates who do not support the integrity of our election system is not a winning strategy? In a normal situation, I think you would assume so. The data here is pretty clear. But the shadow of Donald Trump still plays a big role here. He's the leader of the Republican Party. He has already announced that he's running in 2024, and he has continued for the past two years to keep pushing these narratives around a stolen election. So you have to expect many candidates in the Republican Party will still parrot these stolen election narratives to try to win primaries. It's a winning strategy with base voters, but it's clear that it does not translate to the broader electorate. I talked about that with Trey Grayson, who's the former Republican secretary of state of Kentucky. Voters sent a pretty loud message about election denialism. The voters took that information, processed it, said, we reject those candidates. We're going to reward the candidates who will do their jobs, who will follow the law. After looking at our data analysis of these races, Grayson told me a lot of these swing states, they should have been shooing for Republicans based on the political climate that we've been talking about all year. Inflation, the first midterm of Biden's presidency. But my party, he said, we didn't nominate the right people. And here's Miles Parks. Miles, thanks for this. We appreciate it. Thanks, Rachel. The new CEO of the collapsed cryptocurrency exchange FTX has been brought in to clean up big messes before. We're talking Enron big. But he said none of that compares to the spectacular collapse of a firm with millions of customers that just months ago was valued at more than $30 billion. It was all on full display when bankruptcy proceedings got underway yesterday. NPR's David Gura reports. So there's a lot we don't know about John J. Ray III, the man responsible for steering FTX through one of the largest and most complex bankruptcies in history. He keeps a low profile. He doesn't have a website, and it's tough to track down a photo of him or tape of him talking, which is something. His predecessor, Sam Bankman-Fried, seemed to be everywhere. We do know Ray's first day on the job was November 11th, and he started right after 4.30 in the morning. 
That's when Bankman-Fried relinquished control of his crypto empire after talking to his attorneys and his dad. A stunning crash. FTX went from a $32 billion company to bankruptcy. Its new CEO is John Ray III, who helped manage the notorious energy firm Enron after its collapse in an accounting fraud scandal in 2001. Investors in FTX have given Ray a lot of power to make big decisions, but he has his work cut out for him. Not only does he have to figure out the opaque world of crypto, something few of us can manage, he has to understand the ins and outs of the FTX group, more than 100 companies all over the world. He has so much to muddle through, and part of the issue he has is that he doesn't even know what he has to muddle through. Odette Lienau is a bankruptcy expert at Cornell Law School, and she says Ray's first objective is to gather information. In court on Tuesday, lawyers outlined what they know so far. One stunning discovery is it doesn't appear an outside auditor ever reviewed the FTX group's financial statements. In other words, only Bankman Fried and his buddies knew what was going on with those billions. So Ray has hired forensic accountants. He's also trying to track down critical correspondence, noting Bankman Fried used apps that delete messages automatically. Lee now says Ray is doing a postmortem. Only after he's gotten this clearer picture by figuring out you know, what happened, what actually is the case, can you begin to seek, think about recovery of assets, possible civil actions, things like that, to actually do the turnaround. Which is what Ray was hired to do, and what he's done for decades. FTX didn't make Ray available for an interview, but his reputation precedes him, according to Christine Chung, who's a professor at Albany Law School. He's viewed as something of a turnaround artist. He has been involved in several situations in which he's been quite dogged in recovering assets for creditors. Ray got high marks for how he handled the unwinding of Enron and Nortel's bankruptcy, two of the largest in modern history, which is why something Ray wrote in a recent court filing is so astonishing, according to Chung. In his 40 years of experience, in all of that time, he has, he has never seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information. With that characterization, Ray is making it known early he's going to need some time to figure this out, according to Ted Jenger, a professor at Brooklyn Law School. And Jenker says that directness will help Ray with what he has to do next, sharing the information he collects and plotting a path forward. You need someone who can establish trust. And when you say establish trust, that means they have to be someone who speaks with candor to the various constituencies. Millions of creditors, along with regulators, a government trustee, lawmakers, and law enforcement. FTX filed for Chapter 11, so the goal here is to reorganize the company and to sell off assets. Ray has wasted no time bringing in backup, outside attorneys, and five new board members. Ray says FTX now has appropriate corporate governance for the first time since it was founded. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, the surge in the number of children with respiratory disease, RSV, in Massachusetts hospitals, and the warnings from doctors that the situation could get even worse. Forecast says sunshine today, highs in the upper 40s, mostly clear overnight tonight, lows dropping to the upper 20s. More sunshine tomorrow, temperatures in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. 
Now, business news, you will likely pay more for your Thanksgiving turkey this year because the cost of raising turkeys has gone up. As Patrick Scahill reports, farmers say everything from more expensive feed to more expensive fertilizer is to blame. Rick Hermanot farms about 4,000 turkeys on more than 300 acres in eastern Connecticut. He has to buy fertilizer for all that land, and this year, the price has nearly tripled. He blames supply chain disruptions from the war in Ukraine and high natural gas prices. Hermanot says the cost of feed and newborn turkey hatchlings is also way up. It all means he's had to raise prices this year. Typically, we're going up 20 cents a pound. Um, If we go up, we'll go up 20 cents, maybe 30 cents. This year, we went up 50 cents a pound. So it's the biggest increase we've ever had um, in one year. But he says that record price increase still won't offset his higher production costs this year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill. This is WBUR. The time is 744. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Jack Lepiars. Respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, didn't circulate much the last couple of years, likely because many people wore masks due to COVID. Now the masks are off and this old virus is hitting with a new force. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey reports hospitals in Massachusetts are scrambling to respond to a wave of sick young patients while also bracing for an expected increase in cases of the flu. At UMass Memorial Medical Center in Worcester, it feels eerily like the early pandemic days of 2020 when hospitals struggled to keep up with the flood of COVID patients. This time, it's another respiratory virus, RSV, and it's making a lot of kids sick. The onslaught just keeps coming. Dr. Tim Gibson is the chief of pediatric hospital medicine. He says he has never seen anything like this. We have, you know, six, seven, eight-day-olds here with RSV. About half of the hospital's 40 pediatric beds are filled with young RSV patients these days, and more sick children wait in the emergency room. Gibson says the flood of illness is hitting pediatric hospitals across the region. Sometimes there are no ICU beds for kids anywhere in Massachusetts, and they need to be transferred to another state. I had a patient last week who we called every hospital within 200 miles, and they all said, we don't have a bed, do your best. And it was a real, real sick kid. UMass Memorial eventually treated that baby in the ICU. RSV is mild for most children. It feels like a cold, but it can be serious for kids with heart or lung disease or newborn babies with tiny airways. Some struggle to breathe. They need oxygen or fluids. And Gibson says some children wait in crowded emergency departments for hours until hospital staff can find them a bed. If I had an infant, I would not bring them out of the house. For Thanksgiving or Christmas, I would not leave the house. Kind of like COVID was for adults. Dr. Larry Ryan, chair of pediatrics at UMass Memorial, says doctors and nurses are working hard to treat patients quickly, send them home, and make room for more. Our census, it fluctuates minute to minute, hour to hour, but we've been full. It's a revolving door of who it is, but it's always full. Hey, good morning. 
One of their strategies is to move kids who recover to a playroom. It's filled with books, toys, and games. This is a space where we could properly supervise a child and let them have fun waiting to go home while they're not taking up the bed or the, the monitoring system that they no longer need. UMass Memorial has trained staff to deliver one ICU-level treatment outside the ICU. It's called high-flow nasal cannula, and it blows humidified oxygen through prongs placed in a child's nose. This hospital and others are canceling surgeries to make room for the soaring number of kids with respiratory illness, and they're asking tired doctors and nurses to pick up extra shifts. Hospitals are also repurposing space. At Mass General Brigham, some teenage patients are treated in adult units, and some babies are admitted to ICUs, typically reserved for newborns. Boston Children's Hospital is the biggest pediatric center in the region. We are, you know, really trying our best to make sure that every kid is getting the care they need. Admittedly, it might take a little longer. Dr. Sarah Toomey is Chief Safety and Quality Officer at Boston Children's. She says staff in the hospital command center are on calls all day with people at facilities across the region to manage the flow of patients. We're doing our best to triage every child to make sure that uh, those kids for whom they are most in need are being seen quickly. Boston Children's expanded its emergency department to accommodate the influx and converted short-term recovery rooms into spaces where patients can stay overnight. It's hard to predict when the surge of illness will end. Toomey says even as RSV declines, flu is likely to rise. We're anticipating this to go on probably really realistically until the spring. So, you know, thinking and planning actively to make sure we can support our community. Hospital leaders say they need flexibility in how they staff units and treat patients in case the surge gets worse before it gets better. State officials have already loosened some regulations to help hospitals weather the crisis. Ryan of UMass Memorial says the public also has a role in slowing the spread of respiratory illness by getting vaccinated for flu and COVID and staying home when sick. We do need everyone's help to try to decrease this, you know, the, the hustles being overrun because right now we really are working incredibly hard and we want to be available. We are, but it will take everyone's help to do that. And Ryan knows no one wants to hear this, but he says it's also time to think about wearing a mask. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, the new biography of Samuel Adams from essayist Stacy Schiff, who has previously documented the lives of other movers like Benjamin Franklin and Cleopatra. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jopaigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work at jhpiego.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.org.
www.thepatriotgift.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. When you give a modest monthly gift to WBUR, you're giving a very big gift to our entire community. You're giving everyone the journalism that is the oxygen of democracy. And when you support WBUR today, you'll get a little something as our thanks. A year of The New Yorker in your mailbox and on your digital device. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Forecast says mostly sunny today. Highs in the upper 40s right now, 40 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Years ago, a friend told me I had to read a book. It was a biography of Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt in ancient Roman times. Stacy Schiff wrote that book, even though the record contained few reliable facts about Cleopatra's life and even gave conflicting versions of her death. And so instead of trying to get out in front of it or trying to even make the two accounts tally in some way, Um, I had her die twice, once by one account, once by the other account, trying to communicate to the reader that, in fact, both of these accounts are very likely, at least in part, fictitious. We debate history with such certainty, as if we have the answers, when in truth, it's more of a detective story. Schiff has been drawn more than once to people whose stories are partly hidden. I think there's a romance there of some kind. Why did these people go missing? How did they go missing? Who was covering up what and why? Her latest book seeks out a hero of the American Revolution, Samuel Adams of Boston. He's famous, you see his picture on Sam Adams' beer, but unlike other revolutionaries, say his second cousin John Adams, it is hard to say just what Samuel Adams did. He was apparently a writer, a propagandist, dramatizing resistance to the British crown in the 1700s. Maybe he had something to do with the Boston Tea Party, where revolutionaries threw British tea into Boston Harbor. He was a downscale guy from a formerly wealthy family who organized people behind the scenes. He somewhat writes himself out of the history. He's very much aware, in a way Benjamin Franklin wished he were, of not too much claiming the limelight. And he's much more comfortable pushing other people into the spotlight, which is part of his nature. It's very much part of where he comes from. Um, But he also was trying to cover the trail because fomenting revolution is never something you mean to advertise, at least before the revolution. We have a sort of heart-rending account of John Adams's in which Samuel Adams is feeding papers to the fire, to his fire in his room in Philadelphia. And John says to Samuel, don't you think you're maybe overreacting a little bit here? And Samuel replies that he doesn't want any of their friends to suffer for his negligence. So there's a real attempt to sort of cover the trail. He believed he would be more effective if he were less noticed. Is that it? I think it was very useful to him. People wrote under pseudonyms for the most part in those days. And he's writing under something like 30, or at least 30 that we have counted, which makes him seem more effective because, of course, there's this entire legion of people. There's this whole community of people writing, all of them who happen to be Samuel Adams. Because you don't have a lot of his own words that are confirmed to be his own words, um, you seem to go to extraordinary lengths to illuminate the world around him. For example, Samuel Adams, Boston, Massachusetts in the 1700s. Can you tell me about one thing that you did to bring that time and that place to light? You seem to have gone through all the master's theses written by Harvard University students in the 1700s. What did you find? 
I just thought that was an interesting way to get a sense of the pulse of Boston. So Harvard graduates who are essentially sitting for their master's were able to pick a thesis that they intended to argue, either for or against. And the questions that they choose seem to provide something of an x-ray of what was going on in the minds of people at the time. Can slavery be um, in any way justified? Do the ends justify the means? And then there were kind of what seemed to us insane questions, um, you know, about the existence of angels or the religious questions, which we would no longer consider today. And the question which Adams chooses is whether the loyalty to the crown should be sustained if a people's rights have been invaded. This is decades before the American Revolution. What was it that put this on his mind? One of the things that drew me to the book, because there is this long launch time, which I think we forget. I think we tend to think of the revolution as having been this kind of steady march to revolution. And I wanted to inject in it that accidental quality. It, it happens in fits and start, and it at sometimes it sputters out completely. What had happened in the, in the early 1740s is that a land bank, which was founded by a group of Massachusetts men, had been very peremptorily shut down by the crown in London. And Samuel Adams' father, who had been one of the directors of that bank, had invested a great deal in it. In the abolishing of the bank, he was effectively ruined financially. And Adams, Samuel Adams, our Samuel Adams, would spend much of the next years, in fact, fending off creditors because he would be responsible after his father's death for the debt incurred by the land bank and attempting to make sure that his house was not repossessed. So from a very early point, um, there is this sense that his rights have somehow been violated or that the crown has somehow overreached. Did that drive him then for all the years that followed? This is where the evidence fails us. I think you can draw a perforated line between those two things. I don't think I would ever want to say that that is why he is so much sensitive to liberties invaded um, over the years that follow. It is certainly what propels him, by all accounts, it is what propels him to center stage politically. You note that his fellow revolutionaries gave headlines of this guy, said that he was great and important, but then didn't say why. Do you think that you figured out what it was that he did that made him important? I think that if there is a driving force over the years between, say, the Stamp Act and the Declaration, Samuel Adams is behind it. And I think that if you return him to those years, the revolution looks very different. And if you want to see how street protests will build into this much larger movement, if you want to understand what the man in the street was thinking, Samuel Adams will illuminate all of those things for you. He struck me in many ways as, as a man from another time in his austerity and in his integrity. And these are many of the qualities that he demonstrates, I think, are qualities that have, to us today, become qualities which are more military than civilian. But that sense of promoting other people's careers, being the person in the, in the background, um, shepherding other people to center stage, very much, the, very much the way he operated, and partly what made him so effective. He's an extraordinary recruiter of men. One of his contemporaries would say that for that reason alone, he should go down in history. But also remarkably good at changing men's minds. I mean, these were the years, John Adams will say that these are the, this is the real revolution, the, the revolution that precedes the actual fighting. This is the revolution in thinking. And in changing those hearts and minds, Adams is really at the forefront. The latest book by Stacey Schiff is The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Steve.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Seven people are dead, more wounded after a mass shooting at a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia, including the shooter. It's Wednesday, November 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, what we know about the attack, the second mass shooting in the country in less than a week. In Colorado, officials are investigating whether the suspected gunman in a deadly shooting there purposely targeted an LGBTQ nightclub. If this is in fact a hate crime, then it's important for us to signal to the world that we don't tolerate hate crimes in this community. Also this hour, the pushback against China's zero COVID policy offering a rare opportunity for political dissent. And researchers in Maine trying to 3D print homes as a way to address the nation's housing crisis. Can we print a house every two days? That's what we're trying to do. Forecast says sunny today, highs in the upper 40s. It's 8.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Police in Virginia are investigating a deadly shooting at a Walmart store in Chesapeake last night. Seven people are dead, including the shooter. Angelique Arentock is a reporter with WVEC Television. She tells NPR what authorities have gathered so far. We do not know yet an age range or names of those who died in Tuesday night shooting. Investigators do believe, however, that they've found all the victims. In neighboring city, Norfolk, the local Sentara General Hospital is treating five patients. A spokesperson says that they have no update, though, on exactly how they're doing at this time. That's Angelique Arentock reporting. Police in Chesapeake are briefing reporters at a press conference that just got underway. The mass shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs is raising questions about the state's red flag gun law. Five people were killed and more than a dozen others were injured in the attack. Robin Vincent from member station KUNC reports the spotlight is on law enforcement. The law is meant to confiscate firearms from people deemed a threat. Last year, the suspect in the shooting allegedly threatened his mother with a homemade bomb. Law enforcement or relatives can file red flag orders, but in El Paso County, where the nightclub shooting occurred, the sheriff has been a vocal opponent of the law. Professor Emily Ferris at Texas Christian University recently surveyed hundreds of sheriffs nationwide. Sheriffs as a whole are pretty resistant to stricter gun control measures, and what ends up happening is you have individual sheriffs deciding whether or not their county will participate. In 2019, El Paso County adopted a resolution to actively resist a red flag gun law. Multiple Colorado counties have passed similar resolutions. For NPR News, I'm Robin Vincent. The White House is launching a six-week push to get more people vaccinated against COVID-19 with updated booster shots. NPR's Tamara Keith reports the focus is on senior citizens. 
The updated COVID vaccines released in September better protect against the variants of the virus now dominant, but uptake has been underwhelming. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is retiring next month, says the evidence is clear. We know it's safe. We know that it is effective. So my message and my final message, maybe the final message I give you from this podium, is that please, for your own safety, for that of your family, Get your updated COVID-19 shot as soon as you're eligible. As part of what the White House is calling a six-week sprint to get people vaccinated, there will be paid advertising and outreach to nursing homes. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Today is expected to be the busiest day on Massachusetts highways for Thanksgiving travel. AAA expects more than 1.3 million people in the state to travel between now and Sunday. Agency spokeswoman Mary McGuire expects it to be the third busiest Thanksgiving for travel nationwide. Certainly we have people who have remained hunkered down through the pandemic. For many people, this may be the first return to Thanksgiving travel. It may be the first return to visits with relatives with whom uh, they haven't visited in several years. A check of the highways right now shows things are pretty light heading anywhere around greater Boston, though there are some delays on 93 in the city itself. The website FlightAware says 12 flights out of Logan Airport are delayed right now. Amtrak is not reporting any major delays at South Station. The state is opening a temporary intake shelter for migrants. It's prompted by a greater demand for the state's emergency shelter system caused by a spike in arrivals. WBUR's Garo Hagopian reports. Governor Baker's office says the center will be open next month at the former Army base at Devens. It will be run by the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency. The shelter will accommodate up to 125 people at a time. They'll stay for a few days before they're transferred to an emergency assistance location or more permanent housing. Case management services will also be offered. The Executive Office of Housing and Economic Development says the centralized space will allow the state to better assess the needs of the migrants and better prepare communities for the arrival of families to local shelters. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Garo Hagopian. The MBTA says a critical structural issues forcing it to close the JFK UMass station entrance on Columbia Road. T officials say the entrance and concourse will remain closed for at least a month. The T says it's also providing accessible van service to passengers who need it. The Columbia Road concourse is the same area where a Boston University professor was killed last year when he fell through a rusted staircase. Search crews in New Hampshire's White Mountains are shifting their focus from finding a missing Massachusetts hiker to recovering her remains. Officials tell the union leader they plan to talk to the family of 20-year-old Emily Sotelo regarding the new plan. Sotelo is from Westford. Her family says she had plans to hike three mountains alone on Sunday. Officials say she wasn't prepared for zero-degree temperatures. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. In sports, Bruins will try to make it eight wins in a row tonight as they visit the Florida Panthers. Celtics will be at home tonight to face the Dallas Mavericks. At the Men's World Cup this morning, Morocco and Croatia played to a scoreless tie. Germany and Japan are just getting underway. And later today, Spain faces Costa Rica and Belgium takes on Canada. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny today, highs in the upper 40s. 
Clear skies tonight, lows down in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, more sunshine, cooler for the Thanksgiving Day holiday, highs in the mid-40s. Friday, mostly cloudy with rain in the afternoon, highs in the low 50s. And Saturday, back to sunshine, rain moves in Saturday night, highs right around 50 degrees. Right now, 40 degrees in Boston at 8.07. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Layla Falden. The people you're about to hear are speaking out at great risk to their lives, like this 19-year-old student. It's really dangerous for us talking and uh, no, we cannot say anything. They live in Iran. And for more than two months, they've been among the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who've been protesting against the government since Mahsa Amini, a 22-year-old woman, died in police custody after being arrested because her hijab was too loose. Amini was Kurdish, a marginalized community in Iran, and she was known to her friends and family by her Kurdish name, Gina. And they're still demonstrating, despite a state crackdown that has left hundreds dead, despite the fact that thousands more are detained, and despite the death sentences the Iranian judiciary began handing out to protesters last week on charges that include being an enemy of God and corruption on earth. So you can understand why the people who sent us voice memos from Iran don't want us to identify them, including that student you heard. Here, she explains why she protests. I'm, uh, I'm a teenager girl, and I want a future. I want a happiness. I want a good life. I want a good home, good car, good, I don't know how to spend, maybe. I cannot have better future in this country, in this situation. So I think it's for freedom. It's for have a better future. It's for have a better days. We don't have them. So I just want happiness. And I don't have it. No one has it. She switches to Persian here. Describe Quran, it is a... If I want to describe these protests to you, it's like a war none of you have ever seen. On the news, I see my brothers and sisters are taken away, killed and raped. I've seen boys and girls arrested in the most brutal way. Unfortunately, there was nothing we could do because they are the ones with the weapons. Every once in a while, she pauses to apologize for her cough. She's inhaled so much tear gas since she started demonstrating. In Isfahan, we reach a 21-year-old student who's already been arrested once for protesting. They handcuffed me from the back using plastic dyes. It was so tight that I still sometimes feel a pain on my wrist. They pulled my t-shirt over my head so that I couldn't see anything. They beat me off with a baton and with a metal stick on my legs and the sides of my body. They slapped me on the face. And yet, he continues. In a suburb of Tehran, we reach a 63-year-old retired high school principal. We Iranians are protesting for this regime to go. They all know what they're doing could mean prison or worse. But it's prison, not death, that scares the 19-year-old most. It is so, so sad for me as a young woman to prefer to be killed by them than to be arrested, because I know what dark fate is awaiting me and what horrible things will happen to me 
if I am arrested. She says she's worried security forces will rape her if she's arrested. This type of violence against protesters is one reason they're asking for wholesale regime change, not a few reforms. It's why the retired principal is back in the streets day after day. I believe all the revolutions in the world that have happened and have been successful, it was because of unity and continuing and not giving up. I won't give up and will continue until we get what we want, which is a normal life. Protesting comes with the constant worry of possible detention, the concern that security forces might demand to check your phones, about government informants trying to find things out by posing as kind strangers. And hospitals? They're now dangerous places, the protesters say. Places where security forces search for wounded demonstrators seeking medical treatment to detain them. And these protesters are willing to take on all the dangers they just described, hoping for change. But they have a message to the world. I don't know how you're hearing us. I don't know how you are seeing us. And I don't know whether you really care or not. But if you do, help us any way you can. Do something so that we are not forgotten. If we don't have a voice outside of Iran, we will get killed. And the people amplifying these voices outside of Iran are part of the diaspora, like Asya Amini. She's a poet and activist now living in exile in Norway. And every night she stays up on the phone with families inside Iran so she can share their stories. The night before we speak, it was the story of a nine-year-old boy named Kian Prefalek who was shot and killed that kept her up. They killed Kian in a very small city in South Iran. And you know what happened after that? You asked me why I couldn't sleep at night. Leila, Kian's mother and father had to hide Hmm. their baby's body with ice around the baby. Oh my gosh. Asya, I think I don't understand something though. When you say they hid the body at home and put it on ice, they were doing that because what would have happened if they didn't hide the body? The government, they don't want any ceremonies of killed people can happen because they have seen Gina's ceremony. Right, because Gina, there were hundreds, if not thousands of people that went to her grave. Exactly. Ultimately, the family did bury him, and a video posted online shows hundreds of mourners gathered chanting against Iran's supreme leader. family blames state security forces for his killing. The Iranian government denies responsibility and blames an unidentified gunman. They want regime change. This is a very clear message from people in Iran. This is why many Iranians prefer to call these protests a revolution. Because for them, the Islamic Republic has no credibility. There is separation between people in Iran and the name of Iran and the Islamic Republic. When you look at the protests today, do they represent the religious, the non-religious, the young, the old, women, men? I mean, how cross-representative are those that are protesting today? We have many different movements, worker movements, women movements, student movements. The women were the first group that experienced this discrimination and tyranny. 
because the first order of Khomeini after revolution was hijab became mandatory. But it's not only hijab. We have lost gradually all kind of our rights, family rights, divorce rights, economic rights, working rights even. You cannot leave your home without your husband's or your father's permission. And also Mahsa Jina Amini, she was Kurdish also from a minority ethnic group. Yeah, you know, this is in intersectionality with when you look at women in Kurdistan, in Baluchistan, in Khuzestan, because they have experienced the layers of discriminations. All people now call Iran their home. There has been much that the Iranian government has done in the last two months to try to shut these protests down. Arrests killing of protesters, um, shutting off the internet so that people cannot post about what's going on inside. The first death sentence came down for protesters. Has any of that stopped the protests? They have killed people because they protest, because they said no to the regime. I want to refer one slogan. They tell that if you kill one of us, 1,000 will come to the streets. In the past, though, it has worked, crushing protests, right? That's what happened in 2009. What is different? We have not only the last generations, but also the new generation that is very brave. They don't see themselves as only Iranian citizens. They see themselves as a citizen in the world. They have contact with the free world. They want freedom of expression. And they don't afraid of mullahs from 1,400 years ago. They cannot accept them. You know, we also talked about how much Iranians want the world to see what they're doing, what they're dealing with, and to see the difference between the government and Iran. But also Western powers, including the U.S., have had a bad record of meddling in Iran's affairs. And so I guess I want to understand what type of attention or help do Iranians actually want from the world and what type of attention or help do they not want? They want to choose their own political destiny. They want the world not to recognize the Islamic Republic and make this possible for people to have the right to choose their regime. When you are staying up all these nights, what is it for? What are you trying to do with others? There are many activists and journalists who work every day because the world should know what is happening inside Iran. If you are talking to to me right now, it is because of them. They who reported the numbers, the names, the news. We need to work because people in Iran need us. This is very simple answer. What do you see as the future of these protests? I, I can tell you just about my hope. You know, I hope that Iran one day that is not so far can be a home for all Iranian with equality, with freedom, and with respect to all people. This is my my dream, that we can stop this circle of violence. Asya Amini, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for asking me, and thank you for paying attention to Iran's 
situation. And I hope that all these news, all these talk can affect on Iran's future. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, the growing demand for lithium to fuel automakers' increasingly large shift to electric vehicles. Then in 20 minutes, China's strict zero-COVID policy and the backlash it has prompted, offering a rare opportunity for political dissent. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Journalist Putsada Rang has reported on many wars. Her own life is defined by the war her family escaped. What did I owe my mother for giving me life? On top of that, what did I owe her for saving my life when my family escaped the genocide and war in Cambodia and immigrated to America. The question gripped Rang as she decided to tell her mother that she's gay. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Wachusett Ski Resort opens for the season today. The mountain says its snowmakers have been busy with the cold weather and that there is enough snow on at least four of the trails to open for skiers. Forecast says it'll be mostly sunny skies today, temperatures in the upper 40s. Clear skies and colder tonight, lows dropping to the upper 20s. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny for Thanksgiving, highs in the mid-40s. Friday, mostly cloudy skies with rain moving in later in the day, highs in the low 50s. Right now, it is 40 degrees in Boston. The time is 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Total Wine & More, where shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. More at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from EBSCO, currently hiring and committed to letting people thrive. Information about hybrid and remote positions is at careers.ebsco.com. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. The world needs more lithium now. The mineral is a key part of electric vehicle batteries. Switching away from fossil fuels to avoid climate catastrophe means scaling up lithium production at a mind-boggling pace. The obvious answer is to build more mines, with all the environmental and local concerns that come with that option. But as NPR's Camila Dominoski reports, new mines aren't the only way to get more of a hot commodity. Halfway between Reno and Las Vegas, there's a dry lake bed over the bones of an ancient volcano. Down a gravel road and past a security checkpoint stretch a series of Caribbean blue ponds. They're filled with brine, a mixture of water and salt and lithium. This is one of the first pumps where brine comes in and gets pumped into here. 
This is where the process starts. Julian Ortiz is leading journalists on a tour of Silver Peak Lithium Mine. A century ago, this was home to a traditional old school silver mine with men tunneling into the hills for ore. But today, it's probably not what you're picturing when you think of a mine. There's no giant pit, no dark tunnels, just these pools of brine pumped up from underground to a series of ponds. It's quiet. In fact, it's not the easiest scene to capture for audio. Just sitting underneath this very intense sun, and the water is evaporating. For 50 years, workers here have used the power of the sun to concentrate the lithium inside this brine. It wasn't a high-profile mine because lithium wasn't a high-profile mineral. It went to glassmaking or bipolar medication or industrial lubricants. But lithium particles can do a pretty cool trick. They can move back and forth between the positive and negative end of a battery, releasing and storing energy as they go over and over again. That's what makes a lithium-ion battery work. And those batteries are crucial for the fight against climate change. All that means this old mine has new energy. In the past year, lithium has tripled in value. Battery manufacturers are desperate for more of it. So miners here are pumping more brine and getting more lithium out of every drop. All told, Silver Peak is doubling production. That still doesn't make it a huge mine, as these things go. Just here in Nevada, there are proposed lithium mines that would be much larger. But one of those mines threatens a rare wildflower. Another has prompted intense local opposition. Silver Peak doesn't have those controversies. It's a lot easier to boost production at a mine that already exists than to start a new one. Of course, it still can't happen overnight. It can take up to two years for a molecule of lithium to make it from that first pond to the packaging plant. We pump the brine off of the last pond out there. It goes into a couple of holding tanks. That's Brad Earhart, the head of maintenance at the mine. Inside an old mill from back when this was a silver mine, they take that brine and add a chemical that reacts with the lithium to make a white powdery substance. They dry that out and blow it into giant white bags. Each weighs one ton. This is the stuff that battery makers are so desperate to buy. If I tasted it, would it have a taste? I would, I'm not going to taste it. it. Tastes a little bit like lemons. Like lemons? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> like, yeah, he, I'm he was pulling it. my leg, but let's run with this. Imagine that you're a lemon farmer and the world suddenly wants a lot more lemonade. The price of lemons, say, triples, and it's going to take time for the world to plant more lemon trees. What do you do? You sell every single lemon you possibly can, right? You squeeze out every drop of juice. That's what Silver Peak is doing, and not just Silver Peak. Big mines in South Africa, Argentina, and Australia are ramping up output quickly. Susan Zoe is a senior analyst with Rystad Energy. Actually, in the past six months, we have been already quite surprised to see how fast those existing projects have responded to the lithium price hikes. And they're making a lot of money in the process. Albemarle, the mining giant that owns Silver Peak, just had its best quarter ever. Talk about turning lemons into lemonade. Boosting output at existing mines is the obvious way to make more lithium. But it's not the only way. 
There's lithium in the brine used at geothermal power plants. Lots of companies are trying to figure out how to extract that lithium at a profit. And there's a magnesium mine in the U.S. that was making lithium as a waste byproduct. They're selling it now. That's kind of like finding a giant stash of lemons in a trash heap. Kwasi Ampafu is the head of metals and mining at Bloomberg NEF. There's something interesting about high prices. It incentivizes everything. Back at Silver Peak Mine, a van drove to the top of a pile of salt as big as a hill. This is salt that was scraped out of these evaporation ponds, left over as part of the lithium mining process. It was a crunchy and oddly sparkly setting for an interview. Karen Narwald is the chief administration officer of Albemarle, the company that owns this mine. She says better technology is going to help companies meet this growing demand for lithium. We're all looking at additional ways to get more. Aside from squeezing everything it can out of mines like Silver Peak, Albemarle is also making plans to reopen a big old lithium mine in North Carolina. That's a rock mine, not a brine mine like this, and it's been closed for years. But it was an operating mine back pre-1980s. And reopening a mine? It's an easier lift than launching a brand new one. Albemarle will also start recycling old batteries for lithium. And then remember how some companies are finding lithium in the trash heap? That could even happen here. There's a theory that the salt that comes out of these ponds um, can also be reharvested. Turns out that giant hill of salt we were sitting on top of, it's full of traces of lithium. Now, existing mines and shutdown mines and trash heaps, all of that can only go so far. To meet projected long-term demand for lithium, analysts say the world will still need new mines. And that means hard conversations about where and how to build them responsibly. But as those conversations unfold, the fight against climate change isn't waiting to hear how they pan out. The global race to make more lithium, it's already underway. Camila Dominoski. NPR News from Silver Peak, Nevada. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, authorities in Colorado say they are investigating a deadly shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub as a hate crime. Also, the backlash against China's zero COVID policy. Remember, this month, WBUR's Last Seen podcast returns for a third season with new mysteries about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Follow Last Seen wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, visit WBUR.org to check out a list of seven more podcasts that are worth listening to this Thanksgiving. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus, Friday through Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Virginia are investigating last night's deadly shooting at a Walmart store in Chesapeake, not far from Norfolk. Six people were killed and several others were wounded. The gunman is also dead. He is believed to have taken his own life. Police Chief Mark Seleski spoke to reporters a short time ago. The first officers arrived on scene within two minutes at 10.14 and entered the store approximately two minutes later at 10.16. The first responding officers entered the store, and the scene was declared safe by 11.20 p.m. 
Police say the gunman was an employee at that store. There's a court hearing today in Colorado for the person suspected of carrying out last weekend's deadly shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs. It left five people dead and more than a dozen injured. Josh Peck with Texas Public Radio says authorities are learning more about the suspect. Anderson Lee Aldrich's legal name was Nicholas Franklin Brink before he changed it when he was 16. His grandparents, his legal guardians, granted him permission. Aldrich, now 22, was enrolled in a San Antonio area school district until withdrawing in October 2015 in his freshman year, the year before he changed his name. Aldrich is expected to appear by video link from an El Paso County jail cell later today. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Hospitals across Massachusetts are taking new steps to manage a surge of children with the respiratory virus called RSV. The virus can make it hard for some patients to breathe. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports hospitals are canceling surgeries and finding other ways to handle the influx of patients. These days, there aren't enough beds for all the kids who need treatment for RSV. Patients face long waits. Some have to be transferred out of state. Hospitals are repurposing space to make more room, and they're giving some kids ICU-level treatments outside the ICU. Dr. Tim Gibson at UMass Memorial Medical Center in Worcester says young babies are most at risk. If I had an infant, I would not bring them out of the house for Thanksgiving or Christmas. I would not leave the house, kind of like COVID was for adults. As RSV starts to recede, hospitals are bracing for an uptick in flu. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. Candidates in two Massachusetts House races are asking for recounts after their races were decided by fewer than a dozen ballots. Kristen Kastner of Hamilton and Andrew Shepard of Townsend are asking state officials to give their races another look. It might take weeks to find out the results. The lines at Logan Airport will be long today, and you may get stuck behind someone trying to get some of their Thanksgiving meal through security. Aviation Director Ed Frenny's reminding people of the rules for food in carry-on luggage. You can bring solids, but you can't bring liquids. So don't even take a chance at it. Do not bring it in your carry-on. You can bring cake. Uh, you can even bring a uh, frozen turkey. But, you know, I wouldn't suggest you carry on something that big or heavy. 1.2 million people are expected to fly through Logan for the holiday. The busiest days will be today and Sunday. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. In sports, Celtics begin a six-game homestand tonight as they play the Dallas Mavericks. Bruins will be in South Florida to skate with the Panthers. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny today, highs in the upper 40s. Clear skies tonight, lows in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, more sunshine, cooler for the Thanksgiving Day holiday, highs in the mid-40s. And Friday should be mostly cloudy with rain in the afternoon, highs in the low 50s. Right now, 42 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Clarivate, creators of the Ideas to Innovation podcast, an exploration into solutions designed to address the world's most complex problems at clarivate.com podcasts.
and from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Sammy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. We are learning this morning about another mass shooting, this time in Chesapeake, Virginia, where a gunman killed six people in a Walmart store. Police say the shooter was an employee who also wounded at least four people before dying of a self-inflicted wound. This happened just a few days after a shooter walked into an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs and killed five people. The suspect in that shooting is 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich, who is in custody. Investigators are still gathering evidence to charge the suspect with murder and potentially with committing a hate crime. Here to talk about what a hate crime prosecution might look like, we're joined by NPR's Adrian Florido. All right, I realize, you know, different states have different definitions about uh, what makes a hate crime, but how does Colorado, Adrian, handle these kinds of crimes? Well, in Colorado, they're called bias-motivated crimes, and that's a crime in which an attacker is driven by prejudice against a victim's race, religion, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Uh, At a press conference Sunday, the day after the shooting, the district attorney for Colorado Springs, Michael Allen, said this shooting is being investigated as a potential hate crime. Uh, The challenge is proving motive. uh, In this case, how do prosecutors show that the suspect was motivated by bias against the LGBTQ community? Uh, Some legal experts say the mere fact the shooting was at a gay club on a night when it was commemorating victims of anti-transgender violence uh, could be a pretty powerful uh, evidence on its own. And of course, investigators will be scouring the suspect's background, digital trail, uh, text messages in search of more evidence of anti-gay prejudice. All right, so let's say they find the evidence that they're looking for. How hard is it going to be to prove a hate crime in Colorado? Well, it used to be that prosecutors had to convince a jury that a suspect was motivated solely by hate. Uh, That made convictions very hard to win. But last year, state legislators in Colorado rewrote the law, and now prosecutors only have to prove that bias was one factor in a suspect's motivation. I spoke with Bilal Aziz, who leads hate crime prosecutions in the district attorney's office in Denver. So the ability to say to a jury, you don't have to find that his only reason for acting was his racial or sexual orientation-based animus, even if it was part of why he was acting the way he was acting, you may still convict. As he said, prosecutors across the state have welcomed this new tool as a powerful one in in the fight against hate. So what does it mean then if the suspect in the Colorado Springs shooting, if there is a charge and then a conviction of a hate crime, what does that mean at that point? Well, it's important to note that the most serious charges the suspect is likely to face are first-degree murder charges, which would mean a life sentence if convicted. If convicted of hate crimes, that could mean several years in prison on those charges, But in practical terms, that doesn't mean much if if you're already serving life for murder. Uh, Regardless, Bilal Aziz, the Denver prosecutor, said if the evidence is there, filing those charges is still important. Whether or not it is a lead or top charge, it is still important to signal to communities that we see them and that we are not going to allow this behavior to continue and pursue those charges where appropriate. Right. So it sounds like there's still a lot that has to happen. uh, But immediately, what's going to what's going to happen next? Well, the suspect got out of the hospital last night and is now in county jail. Uh, A first court appearance is set for today. It's happening virtually. Uh, We still don't know when formal criminal charges will be filed. Uh, The local district attorney said earlier this week that investigators want to gather as much evidence as possible before filing those charges. That's NPR's Adrian Florido. Thanks a lot, Adrian. Thank you, Ed. 
As the third anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic approaches, China is still following a tough zero COVID policy. The results have been mixed. The numbers of cases and deaths are low by global standards, but there's a growing economic toll. And as NPR's John Ruwich reports, the policy has sparked something rare in China, political dissent. Throughout the pandemic, there have been times when frustration and anger have boiled over. In the city of Guangzhou this month in southern China, residents broke through temporary COVID barriers and rampaged in the streets. And last spring in Shanghai, patients wore thin during a lockdown that lasted two months. For the most part, the unrest has been focused and local. But last month, something different happened when a man in Beijing hung banners over a crowded road. They demanded an end to repressive COVID-19 policies called for Chinese leader Xi Jinping to be removed from office and told people not to be slaves, but to be citizens. It was audacious, and it struck a chord with untold numbers of people, including a Chinese undergrad who goes by the nickname Finley. A few days later, she was in a classroom building at the university she attends in Hong Kong. My hands were shaking. We're using a voice actor and not revealing Finley's name to protect her identity. She had a small poster she'd secretly printed supporting the bridge protester and a roll of tape. I was petrified that someone would walk by, so I stuck the tape on quickly, posted it on the wall, and then turned immediately and hurried away. In China, the space for dissent has shrunk markedly under Xi Jinping. Jeffrey Wasserstrom is a historian at the University of California, Irvine, who studies Chinese protests. He says that acts of defiance like the bridge demonstration are all the more surprising. It was a kind of reminder of how even a desire for kind of total control, there's still going to be what Leonard Cohen talked about, the cracks where the light gets in. The bridge protest lasted mere minutes, and censors scrubbed images of it from the internet inside China. But it spread, thanks in part to people like another college student we talked to, this time in mainland China. He goes by the name An, and again, we're using a voice actor for his protection. This kind of open protest is so rare in China, and it also took direct aim at Xi Jinping. I felt like crying. He says he knew it reflected what many people were thinking, but didn't dare to say. I wanted more people to know what had happened. So one day at a crowded outdoor spot, he says he changed the name of his iPhone to cover his identity and airdropped pictures of the bridge protest to every phone it detected around him. When I heard my phone vibrate, I knew I'd succeeded. Others reportedly used that method too. Apple has since made it harder to airdrop files to strangers in China. Still, for some, like Finley, carrying out these small anonymous copycat protests feels better than doing nothing in the face of what some now call political depression. That's a feeling of impotence in the face of unending COVID restrictions and deepening authoritarianism under Xi Jinping. I did what I could do. I tried my best, and that gives me some comfort. I think it truly helps alleviate some of that political depression. Wasserstrom says small copycat events in China are daring acts, given the stakes. And he says waves of protests can sometimes start from mundane complaints, but he warns we should avoid reading too much into them. And falling into a trap that some analysts fell into at the beginning of the COVID-19 process when they started thinking about this as potentially the Chinese Communist Party's Chernobyl. Right now, he says it's hard to see what, if anything, the pessimism and protests might add up to. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, researchers in Maine unveil the first 3D-printed home, something they hope could become a solution for the country's housing crisis. In the forecast, it'll be sunshine today, highs in the upper 40s, mostly clear overnight tonight, lows dropping to the upper 20s. More sunshine tomorrow, temperatures in the mid-40s, and Friday, rain likely in the afternoon, otherwise mostly cloudy and warmer with highs in the low 50s. Right now, 42 degrees in Boston at 843. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. Now business news. The New England Council is asking the Biden administration to pick the entire region as the new location for the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health Headquarters. The project, also known as ARPA-H, is tasked with researching and preventing diseases like cancer. A group of political and business leaders is already lobbying the White House to pick Massachusetts as the agency's new home. The New England Council is instead focusing on the region as a whole in its efforts. Whole Foods says it will no longer carry Gulf of Maine lobster at its stores. The decision follows a suspension of the fisheries certification by the Maine Stewardship Council last week. The watchdog group says the fisheries practices put endangered North Atlantic right whales at risk. The Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative calls the decision disappointing. The city of Medford wants to build a new development on what is currently parking lots near the Wellington MBTA station. The Boston Globe reports eight development teams have submitted initial plans for the location. This is WBUR. The time is 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Jack Lepiars. Researchers at the University of Maine have unveiled what they say is a promising, climate-friendly response to the nation's affordable housing crisis, the world's first bio-based 3D-printed home. Nicole Ogrisco reports. Maine Governor Janet Mills and U.S. Senator Susan Collins were among those who turned out in the cold on Monday to unveil the 600-square-foot home. We are pleased to unveil the first... 3D-printed home made of bio-stuff. <laughs> On the outside, this one-story house looks like any other new construction. It has white siding and black trim around four front windows. The only difference is that the roof is curved, meaning the corners of the home are rounded. Inside, a short hallway leads to a tiled bathroom and finished bedroom. Another doorway leads to a small living area, an open kitchen with all of the appliances. So the whole thing's 3D printed, uh, walls, roof, floor, ceiling, everything. Scott Tomlinson, lead engineer for the project, explains that some of the walls have been painted, some sheetrocked. Some of the floors are tiled or covered in laminate flooring. But as they were printed, the walls and ceiling offer an indication that something about this home is different. Standing in this uh, room, this was printed at 90 degrees, so from the back of the house to the front of the house is a series of lines going along the roof and down the wall, about a quarter of an inch apart, 
So it looks like you're you're in this uh, this beaded ceiling roof wall combination. The home has been printed using a material known as wood flour. It's essentially the waste left over from a sawmill and mixed together with a binder made from corn. There's 1.2 million tons of wood residuals in our sawmills right now in the region that could go to print housing. Habib Dagger is the executive director of the university's Advanced Composite Center, which spent years experimenting on the material with help from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory and the U.S. Department of Energy. Speaking to a crowd gathered inside the large lab space, Dogger says he believes that this material presents a potential business opportunity for Maine's forest products industry. And it could become an inexpensive, renewable, and recyclable building material. The next step is to scale up the printing process. The house, the 3D printed home, weighs about 40,000 pounds. Divide by 1,000 pounds an hour, that's 40 hours, right? So can we print a house every two days in one cell? That's what we're trying to do. Maine is short about 20,000 units of affordable housing for low-income households. And while money has flooded into the state for construction, progress has been slow with supply chain challenges and a limited workforce to build new units. But Dan Brennan, executive director of Maine Housing, says this project could achieve what's previously eluded the state so far, speed. We all know of our labor force challenges, and that is not going to go away. The idea that we can create housing units in a fraction of the time with a fraction of the workforce adds an efficiency that we've never experienced before. Dogger says the lab is a long way away from producing 3D printed homes at a mass scale. This first prototype will sit outside for several months. Sensors will collect information about the impact of the cold, snow, and eventually heat and humidity on the house. After her tour of the 3D-printed home, Governor Janet Mills said she believes these houses will put Maine on the map. It's extraordinary. I didn't know what to expect. I thought maybe some hunk of clay kind of looking thing, but this is a real house. And she says it could be another tool to address Maine's housing crisis. This has the potential to help us with the homeless population, homeless problem. Not this uh, winter, because it's not ready to be mass-produced yet. But once we get a factory of the future up and running, we will be able to produce homes of this sort. University officials say an expansion of the Advanced Structures and Composite Center is in the works. The addition will serve as a training ground for the next generation of scientists and engineers. And it could allow the university to print more homes more quickly. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nicola Grisco. This is WBUR. Jack Lepiar is here in the studio with here and now co-host Robin Young, who's here to tell us about the show today, starting at noon. Robin, what's up? Uh, well, what is up is that we're going to continue to follow the news you've been following this mm-hmm. morning. This terrible shooting in Virginia at the Walmart, reportedly um, a known manager in a break room, and we'll have the latest on that. It's just terrible, yeah. you know, these stories coming at us. Also, we're going to look ahead at winter with Dr. Peter Hotez. What do we need to know about COVID, mm-hmm. especially since the CDC has just released their findings? There are a lot of questions about the latest booster. They say, no, it is effective. Had you had one, Jack? I got it like two days Excellent. after it came out. Excellent. I'm getting mine on Saturday. And then a warning if you're traveling. Have you checked your bag for cats? 
Well, I'm sorry, what? Okay, so <laughs> apparently they found a bag going through a screener about to be checked, you know, on board. And it had the shape of a cat in it, and they opened it up, and sure enough, there was a cat. And the owner had, you know, had a roommate who had a cat. You know, cats love to get in bags. Oh, no. oh, and so wow. there yep. was the yep. cat. And guess the TSA tweeted out what they did. What do you think they did? Uh, I, I, I would hope they Come on, Jack. gave the cat back to the they owner. They let the cat out of the bag. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, no. All well, the news at noon. <laughs> you can hear that and more puns at noon here on WBUR. It's true. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, a place to come together for books, coffee, author discussions, holiday gifts, and more. Visit anunlikelystory.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. If WBUR is indispensable in your daily life, make it a priority in your year-end giving. A monthly gift will keep you grounded in facts and new ideas. As our thanks, get a year of The New Yorker on your digital device and in your mailbox at a 40% savings. It's a limited time offer, so get in on it while you can at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Things get ugly at a massive factory in China that makes iPhones. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine, where that perfect holiday bottle of Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine can be found. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. I'm David Brancaccia. There are reports of an unruly protest at a huge Foxconn factory in China that produces iPhones for Apple. Social media images appear to show workers clashing with authorities. Workers told our newsroom partners at the BBC that some promised bonuses from Foxconn have been delayed and workers are reportedly chafing at new anti-COVID restrictions, such as being required to live at their workplace. This comes about two weeks since China's government began revising its zero-COVID policies, in some cases easing rules. The changes include scaling back mass testing and stopping local officials from tacking on extra restrictions. One Chinese city was first to loosen up. Here's Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack. Shijiazhuang is a short hop from the Chinese capital of Beijing, and certain districts there have been under lockdown since the start of this month. Then the revised COVID measures were announced by the central government on the 11th. Two days later, Shijiazhuang lifted lockdowns. Suddenly, no more plastic barriers caging in residents, no need to show negative PCR results to get on public transport or enter malls. All free testing stations shut. Schools reopened. Then rumors circulated online that some parents were too scared to send their children to school because people weren't being regularly screened for COVID. It's unclear how widespread this sentiment was, but it triggered some national discussion. Had Shijiazhuang residents been locked in so long they did not know what to do with some freedom? This debate got cut short. Because on Monday, Shijiazhuang imposed a stay-at-home order for five out of eight districts and mass testing every day until Friday. The U-turn happened within a week. Loosening the zero-COVID policy is going to be a bumpy ride, especially when cases on Tuesday surge nationwide to 29,000. Low by U.S. standards, but close to China's single-day record. In Shanghai, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace. 
Tomorrow's Thanksgiving, with the day after enshrined in the American religion of consumption as a day off to buy things for the holidays, the National Retail Federation is forecasting that retail sales will grow 6 to 8% this holiday season compared to last year. Marketplace's Justin Ho has that. Retailers have some reasons to be concerned. Inflation's near 40-year highs. Consumer sentiment, according to the University of Michigan, is near multi-decade lows. Based on what's happening in the broader economy, consumers really should be pulling back and spending, right? That's Shannon Siri, an economist at Wells Fargo. Thing is, she estimates that consumer spending will rise. That's because so far this year, spending's been pretty resilient. Households are going to continue to draw down some stockpile of savings. I think they're going to put more on, on their credit card to facilitate, you know, the most normal holiday season in two years. A normal shopping season doesn't necessarily mean a booming one. Some retailers have reported that sales slowed down late last month compared to the same time a year ago. But Brian Yarbrough at Edward Jones says last year at this time, sales were unusually high. Because there was all this pre-buying due to concerns around the supply chain in 2021. Yarbrough says sales this holiday weekend will give us a better sense of how consumers feel about spending. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. It's news today that first-time filings for unemployment benefits rose to 240,000 for the week, the one that ended in Saturday, on Saturday, the highest since August. Nearly 1.8 million people are drawing unemployment this Thanksgiving. Stock index futures are little changed. The S&P is down 12.6% since this day before Thanksgiving a year ago, but it's up, if you want to be philosophical, 50% from this time five years ago. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Prisma Sassy from Palo Alto Networks. Secure access for hybrid workforces wherever work happens. The future of secure access is ZTNA 2.0. It's zero trust with zero exceptions. More at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. People who live in rural areas are less likely to have paid sick days or paid family and medical leave than people who live around cities. Of the more than 30 states with more rural populations, not one has a paid family or medical leave law. This from a report from the think tank New America. And only two of those states, this is Vermont and New Mexico, require paid sick days. Here's Marketplace's Samantha Fields. If you live in a rural area, you might be an hour or two or more from your nearest hospital or doctor. Rural communities are much, much further from hospital-based health services like obstetrics care, NICU care, cancer screening and treatment. Vicki Shabo wrote the report at New America. She says that means people in rural areas often need to take more time off work to get care. And yet people in rural jobs tend not to have access to paid sick time or to paid time off that they can use for serious family and medical needs. There are a couple of reasons for that, Chabo says. We know that in rural communities, the types of jobs that are there, things like retail and service and manufacturing and agriculture, these are jobs that don't tend to offer paid leave benefits. And she says states that are more rural are less likely to have laws mandating paid sick time or family and medical leave. Eileen Applebaum at the Center for Economic and Policy Research says that has real consequences for people's health. Nobody is driving four hours to see a doctor about something they think might go away. Especially, she says, if it means losing a day's pay or more. And so... Many of these folks are just in much poorer health than people who live 
in urban areas where access to health care is much easier. For people who do get sick and need to take time off or who have to care for a child or a sick family member, there are real economic consequences, too. Jason Resendez is at the National Alliance for Caregiving. The impacts are having to leave the workforce in the most drastic example or to have healthcare issues impact their ability to work, to grow within their careers. He says more than 50 million people in the country are caring for a family member. And that doesn't include parents who stay home with their kids. Many caregivers work, too. Rural caregivers typically work an average of 34 hours a week while providing care, and they're more likely to report negative financial impacts due to caregiving, such as taking on debt, leaving bills unpaid, or borrowing money from friends and family. Paid sick days and family and medical leave, he says, would help alleviate some of those challenges. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. And you're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up next is the BBC World Service. Forecast is mostly sunny today, highs in the upper 40s. Mostly clear overnight tonight, lows dropping to the upper 20s. Tomorrow, more sunshine for Thanksgiving, highs only in the mid-40s. Friday, clouds with rain likely in the afternoon, highs in the low 50s. Right now, it is 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family owned and operated, offering brand name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. Journalist Putsada Rang has reported on many wars. Her own life is defined by the war her family escaped. What did I owe my mother for giving me life? On top of that, what did I owe her for saving my life when my family escaped the genocide and war in Cambodia and immigrated to America? The question gripped Rang as she decided to tell her mother that she's gay. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.